Hey, the last book that we ventured through was 1 Peter. So I thought it makes sense for us to go through 2 Peter starting today, verse by verse. I promise we'll be done by 2026, okay? <laughs> we go through books of the Bible believing that doing so covers topics we wouldn't normally cover if we just did it topically. And so uh, I think that, that really helps us. We go through books of the Bible verse by verse because we believe the Bible to be God's revelation to mankind. Uh, Paul wrote, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Well, what that says to us is that the Bible tells us what to believe and what not to believe, and it tells us how to act and how not to act, right? And so that's the power of the Word of God. That's the benefit of us going through uh, the Bible uh, on Sunday mornings. When my brother graduated from college, he moved to Washington, D.C. and was a congressional intern. Uh, this allowed him to come in contact with Ralph Nader. Nader was a leader of many causes, including um, changes in the Federal Trade Commission. Perhaps most famously, he was a presidential candidate, and he was a consumer advocate. And if any of you ever owned a Ford Pinto or Chevy Corvair, you probably didn't like Ralph Nader because he basically was responsible for getting rid of those cars because they were unsafe. Now, we, we currently have numerous organizations that help us as kind of consumer advocates. You know, I, I like consumer reports, and I'll get the reports if you want to buy like a refrigerator or something. You know, it'll tell you, this is the top one, and these have bad repair records, and they'll give you those kind of ratings on just about anything. But what does the church do to keep people from getting a lemon when it comes to Christianity? How do we keep from getting swindled? You know, there's a plethora of claims on the religious market. You get all these different religions. Everybody's making a truth claim. Well, logic tells us not every truth claim can possibly be true, right? How do you know? I mean, some traffic in False claims. How can you tell the genuine from the fake? Well, one of the reasons that Peter wrote Second Peter was to recognize falsehood and also to encourage the believers that he wrote to to spiritual maturity. Now, there were people in Peter's day who trafficked in kind of an early form of Gnosticism, which means to know and it said that the spirit was good and the material world or anything physical was bad, was evil. So they perverted grace, practicing their version of the Christian life. They said, do what you want in the physical life. And that meant indulging the flesh because it really doesn't matter. The spiritual life was measured by spiritual experiences with claims of, you know, hearing from God, I'm being led by God, visions, while they eschewed 
objective truth when it comes to matters of your spiritual life. The sad fact that in our culture, people get really upset if they have a bad coffee maker. You'll hear about it on the news, a coffee maker blew up. And you know, they'll, don't buy this one from this maker because look what happened, right? But what do they do when there is a false teacher? And what do they do to people who point out spiritual incompetence? I mean, how dare you, people will scream, for you being so judgmental, unloving. Ralph Waldo Emerson said, tell me what a man believes and I'll tell you what he'll do. I think there's some truth to that. People live according to their belief system, right? Peter wrote the second epistle in probably the mid-60s A.D. Uh, it was just before he died under Nero's reign. The letter probably went to the region of where the first letter, first Peter went to, in what is now modern-day Turkey, to the churches around there. Uh, Jesus gave Peter a kind of life-altering word. We read about this in Luke twenty-two thirty-two, when he said, but I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And then later on here in 2 Peter, he tells his recipients to keep striving to fulfill God's calling, and he says in verse 12, establishing them in the truth. So here we had Jesus calling in Luke, and now kind of the, the fulfillment. You know, Peter was writing this right before his death. Things were heating up under Nero. And when death is imminent, it has a way of putting into focus the things that mattered. And what mattered to Peter was strengthening the brothers and sisters in truth. Let's all stand as we take a look at these first two verses. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Father, we thank you for your word that's true. We pray that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher. We just admit that sometimes we come together on Sunday and it's just ho-hum. Uh, we do it regularly. And Lord, it's just easy to not have our minds and hearts engaged. It's a perfunctory thing. I suppose it's good that it's a habit. But Lord, we want it to be meaningful. We want your spirit to speak to us. We want to engage our mind and heart so that we can be transformed. Start with me. Change my thinking, any attitude that I have that's not what it should be. We give your Holy Spirit freedom to work in each of us. I thank you for these, my brothers and sisters here today, that value your word, that value the approach, the approach that we've talked about. And Lord, we're here 
to expand your kingdom, to see you honored and glorified. May that take place today, we pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Simeon is the Hebrew form of Peter's Greek spelling of Simon. Peter was the name that Jesus gave him. And it means the rock. Most of you are probably familiar with this. Now, why does he use both names? Some think maybe it's because Peter is drawing a contrast between how he started as Simon or Simeon, and now here he is as Peter, a rock. Understand that when Jesus said to Peter, upon this rock, I will build my church. I think that Jesus was speaking of Peter's confession that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah. The rock was not so much Peter as it was the confession concerning Christ. Peter's proclamation on the day of Pentecost makes this point. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So Peter went from denying Christ three times to proclaiming Jesus was none other than God, the Messiah. And the Holy Spirit used that message to bring about 3,000 people as new followers of Christ. Peter. Now, how does Peter describe himself? Well, if you and I were writing a resume, I doubt that any of us started with, Joe Smith, I'm a good servant. I'm a slave. That's usually not how you'll start, right? That is something so foreign to us. But it signifies that Peter was under the authority of Jesus Christ. He was honored to have his will in submission to Christ. Unlike Frank Sinatra, I'll do it my way, Peter is saying, I'll do it his way. Peter went from being a disciple jockeying for position as the disciples were in the Last Supper, you know, well, I think I'll be first in the kingdom, blah, blah, blah. He went from that to being a disciple relishing in his will being submitted to Christ. I mean, you want to know one mark of spiritual maturity? It's a person who is not grabbing for the lead. It's not thinking I always have to be the man, right? It's not going for the headlines. A mature follower of Christ wants Jesus famous, not himself. And by the way, Peter was in a good crowd with this. Uh, we read of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were called servants in Exodus 32.13. Moses was called a servant in Deuteronomy 34.5. By the way, these are all the, the champions of the faith, right? Samuel, David, Paul, James, Jude are all called servants. It's a term of honor to serve Jesus Christ. As servants, that means I am the possession of God. In fact, it's like he bought me off the slave block. 
He redeemed me and gave me new life to where I am now his. I belong to him. He is my master. I have no right to claim my will over his. Really, the Christian life could be reduced down to daily operating with his will being over mine. Isn't that our daily struggle? Our flesh is always wanting our will to be done, but I choose his will. I'm a servant. He has power over life and death, and I'd suggest everything in between. Every person, before they have their heart transformed by Christ, has a will in the self. Me, myself, and I. I'm the whole enchilada. That's what we think before we come to Christ. And we still have the fleshly part of us, even as Christians, that we battle. But when a person is new in Christ, he's given a, a new spirit and a will bent towards the sweetness of the Lord. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And then we read in Ezekiel, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit, and I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. So as a servant, Peter stresses his kinship with his readers. But then he says he's an apostle. He's one sent by Christ. He's one establishing churches. And so when he uses the term apostle, he's stressing his solidarity to Christ. And this authority of being an apostle would be helpful to him as he's addressing this false teaching. He says, to those who've obtained a faith of equal standing. Notice faith is obtained. It is given. It is a gift. Think of it this way. How can a spiritually dead person be given life without initiative from God? God has to initiate the process. The Apostle Paul wrote, Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God, the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, peace, love, and faith here originate with God. And then we read in Philippians, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, notice, it has been granted to you, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. We are given the power to believe. Now, yes, we're responsible for what we believe, but there would be no believing without the initiative of God. And then he says it's a faith of equal standing. You know, there's not a, an apostle kind of faith and then a faith for the rest of us. There's not a special faith for the Jews and then a lesser faith for the Gentiles. Right from the beginning, I think Peter is taking a shot at these pre-Gnostic beliefs 
the false teachers purported of having kind of a, an inner circle of special knowledge attainable only by a privileged few. And such ideas are foisted upon unsuspecting believers today who are told, and maybe they're not told in these exact words, but certainly by implication, that the gospel is not enough. Needed is some special denominational or community branding that comes through following certain rules, traditions, or spiritual gifts, or taking some special social opinion or position. Now, we need rules and traditions, spiritual gifts. We should have social positions, but they are powerless in making us right with God. Faith in the work of Christ is how the righteousness of God is applied to our account. We read in Ephesians, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Please don't add anything else at the end of that. The equal citizenship in heaven is a theme throughout the New Testament, and it's illustrated in the book of Acts as Jews and Gentiles were united around the gospel. Listen, it was problematic then, and it's problematic now. Just try to have a church with Republican and Democrat, different races, different backgrounds, different denominations, but it's still the same. There is no distinction between believers. Faith is not unique for men and different for women. There's not one race over another. It's not better as a Baptist or some other denomination. It's not a Republican or Democrat thing. But our flesh is attracted to making a distinction. Why? Because we feel better about ourselves. We want to feel special. And you are special because of what Christ has done. But it's his doing, not ours. But it's the false teachers who utilize this, I guess you could say, this insecurity, this fleshly desire that we have to be superior to another. They would create doubts in others and then sell them, you know, a kind of special access through visions and experiences. Christians have been given equal rights of citizenship in the kingdom of God. Now listen, I know I stand up here every week and I give you a message. And in our, maybe it's not so much now because there's been so much crap that's gone on in churches, but pastors used to be esteemed. And there have been cases where people will put pastors up on a pedestal. But I'm telling you, I have no special access that you don't have, right? I don't have this red phone at my house that I can get a hold of God that you don't have, okay? I have to put my pants on the same. I struggle with the flesh just like you do. Just ask my wife. But some people can't, you know, they, they, they want to idolize people. 
whether it's an apostle or a spiritual leader. Please don't do that. Because what it does, it diminishes what you have. It diminishes what God has done in your life of your position in Christ because it's no different than mine. Now, I may have responsibilities that you don't have doing what I'm doing, but you have responsibilities I don't have. But that doesn't make you better or me better, right? So our faith is precious in the eyes of God just as the faith of the apostles were. Why? Because our foundation is the same. It's Christ. And he says, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, the grammar clearly indicates that God and Savior are referring to one person. And he tells us who that person is. It's not referring to two people. The Greek construction has only one article before God and Savior. And it's Jesus Christ. Making it clear, Christ is God, Christ is Savior. And Titus 2.13 makes the same point. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Again, Christ is both God and Savior. Hebrews 1.8 says, but of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. Christ is addressed as God by the Father. Because of the preciousness of the Son and his righteousness, all who partake of Christ enjoy equal access to God. Now listen, the issue is not our starting point. It doesn't matter how much you know about the Bible before you come to Christ. It doesn't matter what sins you did before you came to Christ because your standing with God is going to be the same. Now, it'll matter in terms of maybe issues you have to go through. I don't mean to make a light of hurts that you might have in your life. But the point is, your standing in Christ is the same. The issue is not our starting point. The issue is the power of the righteousness of Christ in our standing in him. Paul wrote, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. You became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. Peter speaks of three spiritual possessions or commodities we learned of righteousness and now we're going to see in verse 2 grace and peace he says may the grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord now the more that Christians realize the riches of being in Christ the more the implication here the more they will enjoy grace and peace. Notice Peter says these blessings are increased through the knowledge we experience in our relationship with God. When Peter speaks of knowledge, the, the Greek word he uses is instructional. It actually means full knowledge. 
It's not an academic term. It's not a theoretical knowledge. He's not saying if you know all of the facts, if you get your facts straight, change is guaranteed. Now, you need to know the facts. There's nothing wrong with the facts. He's not eschewing intellectual knowledge. Please understand me here. But he's saying the knowledge I'm speaking about now is more than that. It is experiential. It is personal. It is an applied kind of knowledge. Again, I need the facts, but I need more than that. You know, I can know the facts about my wife that helped me to love her. I need the facts, but I need more than that to love her. I need to walk with her, talk with her, pray with her, experience downs, lows, and highs with her so that my love goes beyond knowledge to something personal and intimate. That's full knowledge. So there's a full knowledge of Christ. In other words, I have depended upon him in trials, and I have found him faithful. I've been hurt. You've been hurt, but we find him soothing. We've been doubtful, but he gives us hope. We've been fearful. I've been fearful. I've been wobbly on my feet, but he helps me stand straight. I've experienced his care, so have you, his direction, his touch. And when that happens, peace and grace are understood in a deeper way. Tomorrow I go to spend the morning with a dear friend and one of our missionaries that I traveled to Beirut with. Keith Rasher has been given a week to a month to live because of pancreatic cancer. And I can tell you this, knowing Keith, that there is a grace and peace you read about in books. And you can agree with what you read. But then there is a grace and peace that comes when you stare in the face of death. And I guarantee you that the grace and peace through the valley of death is deeper than just an intellectual affirmation or study of the Greek words. Nothing wrong with that, but that's just a place to start. These experiences for Keith and experiences for the rest of us, I've seen it with a multitude of others that go through severe crisis. This produces a greater faith, not because of a mystical experience, but I would suggest to you it starts with an actual incarnation in a smelly manger with a God-man who walked the earth for 33 years. In other words, we have an embodied faith that interacts with the physical world. That's the world we live in that we don't have to avoid, we don't have to ignore, we can face with all of its pain, with all of its messiness, and find grace and peace. Now, yes, there are forces that work against us in experiencing this deeper peace and grace. One of our culture's main emphasis, especially when it comes to religion, 
is this non-objective spirituality. Some call it mysticism. Some call it intuition. And to be fair, I think there is a kind of intuition, mysticism, where maybe the Spirit is speaking. So I don't want to just cast it out to the side. But the point is that our culture has been obsessed with listening to yourself as the key to spirituality. And you can map out the philosophical roots of this, but the bottom line is that humans love and deify themselves when they reject God. And that's what's happening. In a move sure to frustrate any enchanted princess cursed by evil witches, the National Park Service issued a warning in October 2022 to warn people against kissing, licking, or making any kind of oral contact with toads. Apparently, the Sonorian desert toad, also known as a Colorado River toad, secretes a white, milky substance called bufantanin, which scientists say can act as a hallucinogenic. This has prompted a series of celebrities who have talked about ingesting the substance as a way of inducing a psychedelic trip. Through exaggeration and repetition, the idea has morphed into the possibility that someone can get high simply by licking one of these toads. Now, I am not the smartest man, okay? But if people can lick toads to get high, does it surprise anyone that humans can be misled by false promises, false teachers, claiming spiritual ecstasy by a spiritual wingnut? No. Nothing surprises me because people lick toads. Once you throw objectivity about God and spiritual things out the window, we are subject to just evaluating the experiences through degrees of pleasure. I cannot stress this enough. I've given this illustration before, but I think it applies here again. Is that I, I read an article years ago of our own Brad Pitt from Springfield. Grew up Southern Baptist. Would go to you know, revival meetings and he talked about you know, the preacher on the stage running about the stage and it was so exciting and yelling and screaming. And he'd hear the music and it'd be rousing. He goes, now I realize I just don't need that. I don't need this artifact of God. I can just go to a rock concert. I go to a mosh pit and I get what? The same feeling. That's what comes when we, what? We worship ourselves. It's all about my pleasure, my feeling. I'm not interacting with something that's actually out there, a real God. I'm rejecting any objectivity about that, and now it's about me, myself, and I. Now listen, I'm not just jumping on Brad Pitt. This is rife even within our own camp. People just want to be pleased while they check their brain at the door. Our faith in Christians is not based on imaginary feelings. 
but an objective, historical, revealed, rational truth from God revealed in Christ in the Scripture. Most who traffic in religion and spirituality today replace religion with experience alone. And then the line between truth and lies are erased. Yet Peter points to grace and peace as being realities. Why are these realities? Because they're based on a genuine relationship with a God who really exists, who sent his son who really existed, and who forgives real sin. I trust in Christ because he died a, a real death and rose not from a metaphorical or imaginary grave, but an actual one. My faith is contingent upon objective historical realities that were in space and time, not non-objective experiences. So knowing that is true, I still want to interact and understand this grace and peace in a deeper way, as Peter contends. So how then is my, my knowledge about Christ, how's that deepened? How's grace and peace experienced? Well, I think it starts by understanding that we have to run to Christ and be honest in our pain, right? And the more we do this, the more we realize his sufficiency. I recently met with another man who we talked about marriage, and the talk was, you know, you have to deal with a lot of disappointment in marriage. And this is not, this is not against my spouse or any other spouse. It's the, it is the temptation we all have that we just kind of connect our umbilical cord into another spouse, and we expect them to be our life force. We expect them to meet our every need and to meet needs that only God can meet in us. And what happens when we do that? We get disappointed. And so what do I do with disappointment? with a person that I love dearly. Again, it's not her fault, it's my fault. Because I have expectations that are unrealistic. And so do you. What do we do with this? Well, I can just tell you that in some of my devotions, if you were to read them, which I hope you never will, um, but, <laughs> but there's confessions of you know, this kind of struggle. And I'm arguing with God. I'm trying to get my will to submit to his. I'm trying to love when hurt. I'm trying to obey God in the midst of when I don't get all my needs met. I'm trying to do this when things don't work out the way I want. And yet there's a God who's there who's requiring me, asking me to serve him. How do I do that? I don't have some special secret potion. I'm just trying to be as honest as I can and allow Christ to enter in at those moments and I find him doing some of his best work. In his book, The Pressure's Off, psychologist Larry Crabb, who's now passed away, uses a story from his childhood to illustrate our need to delight in God through adversity. And I'll just read what he wrote. One Saturday afternoon, I decided I was a big boy and could use the bathroom without anyone's help. 
So I climbed the stairs, closed and locked the door behind me, and for the next few minutes felt very self-sufficient. Then it was time to leave. I couldn't unlock the door. I tried with every ounce of my three-year-old strength, but I couldn't do it. I panicked. I felt again like a very little boy as the thought went through my head, I might spend the rest of my life in this bathroom. <laughs> my parents and likely the neighbors heard my desperate scream. Are you okay? Mother shouted through the door. She couldn't open from the outside. Did you fall? Have you hit your head? I can't unlock the door, I yelled. Get me out of here. I wasn't aware of it right then, but Dad raced down the stairs, ran to the garage to find the ladder, hauled it off the hooks, leaned it against the side of the house just beneath the bedroom window. With adult strength, he pried it open, then climbed into my prison, walked past me, and with that same strength, turned the lock and opened the door. Thanks, Dad, I said, and ran out to play. That's how I thought the Christian life was supposed to work. When I get stuck in a tight place, I should do all I can to free myself. When I can't, I should pray. Then God shows up. He hears my cry. Get me out of here. I want to play. And unlocks the door to the blessings I desire. Sometimes he does. But now, no longer three years old, and approaching 60, I realize the Christian life doesn't work that way. And I wonder, are any of us content with God? Do we even like him when he doesn't open the door we most want opened? When a marriage doesn't heal? When rebellious kids still rebel? When friends betray? When financial reversals threaten our comfortable way of life, when the prospect of terrorism looms, when health worsens despite much prayer, when loneliness intensifies and depression deepens, when ministries die. God has climbed through the small window into my dark room, but he doesn't walk by me to turn the lock that I couldn't budge. Instead, he sits down on the bathroom floor and says, come sit with me. He seems to think that climbing into the room to be with me matters more than letting me out to play. I don't always see it that way. Get me out of here, I scream. If you love me, unlock the door. Goes on to say, dear friend, the choice is ours. Either we can keep asking him to give us what we think will make us happy to escape our dark room and run to the playground of blessings, or we can accept his invitation to sit with him for now, perhaps in darkness, and to seize the opportunity to know him better and re represent him well in this difficult world. Amen. End quote. I don't know about you. But that's the type of Christianity I relate to more. I still pray for healing, and I've seen God do it. I still pray for God to intervene and do miracles, and I've seen him do it. And I believe he still can. But I also know sometimes God just wants to sit with me in the dark. And what comes of that? is a profound sense of grace and peace. The, 
profundity of which we wouldn't know without the hardship. Let's pray.